Amen. Thanks, Jason. Uh, what a great refrain uh, to echo in our minds and our hearts as we move to God's Word now. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt, who raised this life up from the grave. What a great thought that is, that he not only will raise us, he has raised us. He's already done that. We already experience the resurrection power in our lives here and now if we know Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. And that is going to be the central thought today as we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you have your Bibles? Good. You need them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll study verses 1 through 11 today. Last week, we introduced this new study of this new letter. It's important for us to consider the context, to think about the recipients, to think about some major themes, to talk about the author and all of those things. Those things are so important for us as we begin a study. It may seem uh, tedious. It may seem unimportant. To be frank, it may seem very boring uh, to go through those things every time. But I'm telling you, if you will hold on to those things, they will come in handy as we study the text and help shed more and more light on the text. This week, uh, we get to the text itself. And I can tell you... Uh, I haven't been this excited about preaching in, in a long time. Um, this is, and, and I worry about that. I worry about that as to why I don't get this excited every week, and, and I'm, I don't know what's going on there. But I do know this. This is what I want you to hear. This text this week couldn't have come into my life at a better time. Uh, this is exactly what I needed this week. And the interesting thing is uh, God has opened up some doors even between really pouring into the text on Monday and preaching it this Sunday. He's opened a couple of doors uh, for me to speak this text in some other lives, some of whom are in this room right now. And it seemed like it was exactly what they needed at exactly that time. And so when God brings all of these things together, it is a really, really exciting thing uh, to encounter. And my fear in it all is that there's so much going on in my heart and in my head and in my life uh, that, that it's just going to blah, just going to come out like that. And, and I don't want it to come out like that. I want it to come out with, with order and structure and clarity. I want it to come to you with, with those kind of things. And so my prayer this morning uh, several times has been, God, give us grace that it would be in order and it would be structured and that it would be clear. But if not, uh, give us grace that it would be so exciting and so uh full of fire, uh, that, that you will take time later to study it with structure and order and clarity, right? Because it's, it's some really good stuff in the text today. And I'm telling you, couldn't come uh, just as an individual, as a guy who, who has a life and, and, and a job and a ministry and a calling, this text couldn't have come at a better time uh, for me. And I hope, I hope just for a couple of you, it hits you like that uh, today as well. So we will study it uh, today and see some very, very interesting uh, things. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses one to eleven. God says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies, and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also 
you are sharers of our comfort. Listen to this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we set our hope. And he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. God, I thank you that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just a fact. I thank you that it's not just a fact that guarantees a future resurrection for us who are in him. I thank you that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us hope now, here, now. Gives us comfort now, here and now, in the midst of our afflictions. God, I thank you for the way you brought comfort and perspective to my life this week through your word in these verses. And God, I pray that you do the same thing for others in this room. I pray that you guard us against misunderstandings and misapplications of this text. And I pray that you drive its point home and bring profound and supernatural comfort and encouragement and endurance and perseverance in the lives of your people. And God, I pray even for those who are not your people that you will stir them to long for this kind of comfort, to long for this kind of hope. And God, I pray that in their longing you will meet them, turn their eyes to you, help them see their need, give them faith to believe and repentance, and change their lives forever, so that the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus would be evident in them today, in this place today, and that you would get all of the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so much good stuff in these verses, especially the last couple. Man, the last couple just rocked my world this week. Um, connected the two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, connected those two things together perfectly so that we can see the way Paul's thought, his understanding, his application of the resurrection develops. It is, it is incredible. And, and I almost want to just skip to verse 8. I almost want to just go straight there because I think that is where uh, the, the thing crescendos and comes to a climax. But there are so many good things for us to learn in the first few verses. So let's dive right in. Right off the bat in verse 1, we see Paul claiming a high authority when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You need to recognize that in 2 Corinthians, Paul's apostleship and his authority is being questioned by all of these troublemakers in Corinth. They're trying to say, oh, Paul, Paul doesn't really speak with authority. Paul doesn't really know what's going on. Paul isn't really an apostle. After all, he was a persecutor of the church. After all, he wasn't even there with Jesus. He didn't walk with, he's not like Peter. He's not like James. He's not like John. He wasn't even there to see all of these things. And so there are people who are questioning his authority. And so right off the bat, Paul uh, defends that authority. He claims the authority of an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle 
um, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the Father. Um, it's claiming this high authority. And in a lot of ways, what you see in these first 11 verses is a defense of his apostleship. And I'll explain that more in a minute. But Paul, right off the bat, claims high authority. He also tells us he's working as a team. He's not an individual on alone, on an all alone on an island. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul rarely went out to do ministry alone. He was always part of a team. He was always part of a group working together, and Timothy was his right-hand man in a lot of ways. And the church at Corinth knew Timothy. They loved Timothy. They had seen God work through Timothy, and so Paul says he's not alone. Next thing he says is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. I love that. I love that because it teaches us that the church doesn't belong to the people of Corinth. It doesn't belong to the city of Corinth. He doesn't say to your church that happens to be at Corinth. He says to the church of God that is at Corinth. And we need to recognize that today, that this church does not belong to us. I want you to hear me clearly say, I don't believe this church belongs to me. This church belongs to God. He bought it with the blood of his own son. It is his, and he has every right over it, every right to rule it, every right to lead it, every right to direct it. He is the head of the church, right? And we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we adopt an ownership mentality in the church that is not ours. When we start to talk about it like it is ours, like we own it. We do not own it. We are simply stewards of it. He owns it. And so we need to manage it in a way that would please him. We need to send it in a direction that he would have it to go. We need to seek to honor him with it because it is his. Okay? So Paul says that right off the bat. And I think it's a, I think it's a jab a little bit at the church at Corinth. And we should see it as a jab a little bit at us. This is not our church in Harrisburg. It is God's church in Harrisburg. And we must never forget that. Then he says... To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Saints. Saints, he calls them. The church at Corinth and all the church at Achaia. He calls them saints, which doesn't make any sense because when we learn more and more of the background, you will learn that their behavior, their behavior lately, especially as they've related to the Apostle Paul, is anything but holy, is anything but righteous, is anything but good. And yet he calls them saints because that's who they are. And that's what we need to understand. If we are in Christ, that is our position. That is our title. That is who we are. That is what we are. We are saints. And saints, not some kind of uh, uh, specially righteous believers. No, every believer, every person who is in Jesus Christ is a saint. And I think we need to embrace that. I think we need to see that. I think we need to build our identity in that to say, I'm a saint. I'm a saint. But we cannot stop there because a lot of people do. A lot of people get that and say, I'm a saint. And they use that position, that privileged position, as an excuse to sin and sin and sin. After all, I'm a saint. I'm a saint. I'm a saint, right? Yeah, you are. You are. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. And I think part of what Paul's going to get at in a little while is now act like it. Now act like it. One of my favorite preachers says that's the essence of sanctification, becoming who you already are. God, by his grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has made you a saint. Now act like it. Now live like it. You are a saint. Show the world that you are a saint. Show them the work that God has done in your life and is doing in your life. So there's so much to learn, even from the first verse, about Paul's authority, about the ownership of the church, and about this glorious position we hold as saints. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, in verse 2, as is normal, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things I want you to see there. The word grace in Greek is about two letters removed from the normal word in a Greek letter. Most of the time, if it was a secular Greek letter, they would say something like greetings or hello right there. And it is a Greek word uh, that, that looks like Karen. Karen. Okay? And Paul changes just a couple letters on the end of that word, and he says charis. So he takes this very secular form, and he Christianizes it by just changing a couple letters. So no longer does he just say, hey, greetings to you. He says grace to you, right? And, and one of the commentators I was reading directly connected the dots in a, in a profound way, and he said that's the way Christianity works, right? It takes everything in your life, and it conforms it. It conforms it. It changes it. It, it, it tweaks it. Christianizes everything so that all of our life is Christian. Even in the way we write letters, even in the way we give greetings. Paul doesn't say greetings to you, he says grace to you. And not only grace, he says peace. He says grace and peace, grace which brings us peace. Peace, not the absence of conflict, but peace, this profound standing with God where there is no enmity, where there is reconciliation, where there is union between us and God. Peace. It's incredible. Because we have not earned that. If anything, we've earned a position of enmity with God. We have become his enemies by our sin. And yet by grace, he brings us into a peaceful relationship with him. And then I think the last thing that happens in this verse is some balance. And, and this, you might not get this. He says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can see the Father as really far off really detached from us and, and unaware of what's going on. Seems like he's just so far away. And what Paul does here, even by these little words, he says he is God our Father. He is near to us. And I think at the same time, sometimes we can see Jesus so near to us that we stop revering him. We stop giving him reverence. We stop respecting him and fearing him because, after all, Jesus is just our buddy, right? No, he's not just our buddy. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, the King, the ruler of it all and so yes he is close to us and he is our friend and he is our brother in some ways but he is also the king and so our relationship with him is one of respect and reverence and awe and fear and i think paul communicates that in just a few little words it is from god our father near to us and the lord jesus christ who is high and lifted up and he strikes some balance here in the things that we can sometimes make a mistake of and then in verse 3, he, he enters into what is a standard section of any letter. The beginning of a letter is always filled with thanksgiving, always a time to express thanks to God. And Paul does that in a great way. And that should be a mark of our lives as well, thanksgiving to God for all that he is doing to us. And in verse 3, we see the theme of this, of this section, maybe even of the whole letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. If you're into underlining and circling, you circle, you underline, you highlight that word comfort. It is found in some form or another no less than ten times between there and verse 11. That word is only used just a few times over 30 in the entire New Testament. So that means that nearly one-third of all the uses of that word in the New Testament happen in this paragraph. So if you're trying to say what's the theme of this paragraph and where should we drive for our application and where should we drive uh, for, for our lesson, what should the point of this text be? If this is one-third of all the uses of that word in the New Testament, that's got to be the theme, right? 
That's got to be where we go. And that has to be the application. That has to be the point of the text. And he says, that's exactly what I'm going to talk about over and over and over again. He's going to use this idea of comfort. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Look at verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you get that? He says that's the purpose. The purpose of God bringing comfort to you in the midst of your affliction is so that you will be able to comfort other people who are in the midst of affliction. And Paul is going to speak to this from a very much first-person perspective. He is not going to say these things as a guy who has never been afflicted. In fact, one of the commentators I read said this. This is a pretty bold claim. He said, Paul was the most afflicted man on the planet during his day. You think that's true? I think that argument can be made. I think that argument can be made, especially when you turn over to chapter 11. Go there. Chapter 11, thinking of Paul's afflictions. He gives a list of them, which is no doubt inexhaustive. It's not a complete list. Surely there were other sufferings. But listen to what he says. Start in verse uh, 21. Eleven twenty-one says, To my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Look at this. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That is incredible. If you study that, if you look into that, five times he got the 40 lashes from the Jews. The same lashes that Jesus got before he was crucified. Five different times he got that. So much so that most people believe that he wouldn't have been able to stand up straight because of all the scarring on his back. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We read about that in Acts. Remember that? Take him outside the city, stone him. Many scholars believe stoned him to death, and the Lord Jesus raised him up. Whether he was dead or not, he got up from that stoning. Their intention was to kill him. He got up from that stoning, and what did he do? He went right back into that city and preached some more. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many, many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says this, this is incredible, and, and, and most of you cannot relate to this at all. He says, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That doesn't sound like a happy life. That doesn't sound like your best life now, does it? And yet he is, in some ways, proud of all of this. Paul was afflicted. Afflicted greatly. And so he can speak of affliction and will listen. And he can speak of comfort in affliction and will listen. And that's exactly what he's going to do to the church at Corinth. He wants them to know what he experienced in his affliction so that he can 
comfort them. Look what he says in the text in verse 4. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says there is purpose to our affliction. There is purpose to the comfort from our affliction. There is purpose in it all so that we can be a help to other folks. And that's the way it always works with God, right? Something happens in our lives. It's not just for us. It's for the sake of the people around us as well. And we pass it on. One of the books I was reading said, what, what do we say to folks who say, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do these kind of things, shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and dangers and dangers and dangers and dangers, why do these kind of things happen to a guy like Paul? And maybe the question we hear in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our schools is why do good things happen, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. The answer to that is they don't. There's no such thing as a good person. The only time a bad thing happened to a good person was on the cross. The only time a bad thing happened to a good person. Bad things happen to bad people. We're bad people. And we need to admit that. So maybe that just gets you out of that whole discussion altogether. The bigger question is, why do bad things happen to God's people? Right? Why does affliction come to God's people? Why does Paul, the superstar of the first century church the greatest missionary that has ever existed, why does Paul encounter so much affliction? Why do we encounter affliction? We don't counter, encounter affliction on the level that Paul encountered affliction, right? But Paul encountered affliction. So why do these things happen? One scholar says this. There are about eight reasons why bad things happen to God's people. One is to test the validity of their faith. You saw that in Sunday school this morning, adults. In First Peter, you saw that. To test the validity of their faith. Number two, to wean them from the world. That affliction comes so that we will realize this is not our home. This is not our home. We look further beyond this. Number three, to call them to their heavenly hope. One of the reasons why we suffer affliction is so that we will look to heaven and we will find our hope there and we will find our security there. You saw that in Sunday school this morning too, didn't you adults? Number four, to reveal to them what they really love. Sometimes affliction comes to teach us that we didn't really need that thing. Sometimes affliction comes to us to show us that we, we love that thing too much. And so he took it away. Number five, to teach us obedience. Bad things happen to God's people. Uh, what are we on? Number seven, bad things happen to God's people so he can reveal his compassion for us. Bad things happen to God's people to strengthen them for greater usefulness. Paul saw that, and you'll see it in 2 Corinthians. He says, in my, in my weakness, his strength is perfected, right? And then also bad things happen to God's people to enable them to comfort those friends, those family members, those brothers, when they are in trouble, when they are in trials. There is purpose. The point of all of this is that there is purpose to our affliction. There is purpose in our comfort, and it is not just about us. It is about the people around us. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. One of the things that was happening in Corinth is that people were saying, Paul, if you were really an apostle, if you were really so close to Jesus, you wouldn't be suffering this way. If you were really in tight with him and had this kind of authority and were really on the right track, you wouldn't suffer like this, right? If you're really so close to Jesus, if you're really a close follower of Jesus, you wouldn't suffer, right? Because Jesus never suffered. Well, duh. 
That doesn't make any sense at all. If you're going to be close to Jesus, if you're going to follow after Jesus, who suffered more than anyone, suffered certainly more than Paul, then you're going to suffer. So this argument that if you're suffering, it must mean that you're out of line is not necessarily always true. And so these people are attacking Paul and his authority by saying, you're suffering, so you must not be close to him. Jesus suffered much, and we also will suffer much. What is true of him will be true of those who follow him. Not that we suffer in the sense of atoning, not that we suffer in a sense of dealing with the sins of men, but we suffer as we follow Jesus. And as Jesus was comforted, we are comforted. Look what it says in verse 6. He says, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings with which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. What I love, what I love in this verse is that Paul says you do this together. You, you, you don't suffer over there on your own. And we try to, right? I see that all the time in the church. Something bad happens, some kind of affliction comes your way, and you run away and try to deal with it over here in the corner all by yourself. Or maybe some great comfort comes to you, and you run away and you try to deal with that comfort all by yourself. That's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not the way God designed it. He designed it so that when affliction comes, we run to each other. When comfort comes, we run to each other. We are afflicted together, and we are comforted together. Just like he said in 1 Corinthians, right? When one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, right? When one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. This is meant to happen in community. Everything in the Christian life is meant to happen in community. And yet our tendency, our natural fleshly tendency, is that when stuff like this goes on in our lives, we run away. We run away and we try to do it, deal with it in a corner. And it's not healthy and it's not good, and it's not helpful. Paul says, all of this is meant to be shared. All of this life is meant to be shared. Affliction, share it. Comfort, share it, because we need each other. Isn't it so good to know that you're not the only one dealing with the problems you're dealing with? Have you ever been in that conversation, maybe in Sunday school class, and say, I just, I have this rebellious child, and I don't know what to do with them, and it's driving me crazy, and someone across the table says, I got that too. Isn't that immediately comforting to know I'm not the only one? I'm not the only one who has the flu this week. You know, I'm not the only one who can't pay my bills this week. Even if there's not a lot of help offered in that conversation, it is good to know you're not alone, right? And yet, why do we try to be alone? We make ourselves alone. For Paul, there was never any, any understanding of this isolation in the Christian life. Never, never crossed his mind that he would go away and deal with this by himself. Always wanted to be a help to the people around him. Always wanted to enjoy the help of the people around him. So, the application there is don't run away. Don't run away. Run to each other in times of joy and in times of sorrow. We need each other. Then, we get to verse 8. And this is what really rocked my world this week. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. We don't know exactly what he's talking about there. 
No scholar has, has nailed this down to exactly what he's talking about happened in Asia. Some would say it has to do with the trouble he experienced uh, in this town or the trouble he experienced in that town. Some would say, oh, this is some uh, flare-up of his thorn in the flesh or, oh, this is some kind of physical disease or, oh, somebody close to him died. We don't know exactly what it, what it was, but what we do know from this text is it was a big deal. Whatever happened in Asia was a very big deal. And what I want you to see in this and what I saw in this is that Paul never says it wasn't a big deal. I think in the church, hear me on this, I think in the church something big happens in our lives and we, from a very superior spiritual perspective, try to act like it's not a big deal. We, we put on this mask, in the Sunday school lesson it says, we grin and bear it. And we put on a mask and we say, oh no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's okay, it's okay, I got it under control. Paul says, I want you to know I want you to know about my sufferings. He never says they weren't profound. He never says they weren't intense. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I wanted to die. I thought I was going to die. I despaired even to death, and I thought I had the sentence of death in my life. I wanted to die. That's honest, isn't it? We are not honest like that. And I think that kind of honesty is not just found in 2 Corinthians. I think it's found throughout all of Paul's writings. I think it's found throughout all of the scriptures. If you read through the Psalms, you will see David be very honest about his suffering, about his affliction, about his pain, and about his sorrow. He never puts on the mask and says, I'm okay, Jesus, I'm okay. He never does that. He cries, he mourns, he weeps, he feels. Maybe the greatest example of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there was ever a guy who had it under control, it's Jesus, right? If there was ever a guy who could say, I get it, I'm okay, I'm okay, it's Jesus. And what do we see in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's crucified? Agony, despair, pain, sorrow, tears, sweat drops of blood. What I want to tell you as your pastor is it's okay to feel that. It's okay to feel your afflictions. Don't think that you are being spiritual by saying this doesn't hurt. Don't think that you are being spiritual by saying it's okay. Don't think that you're being spiritual by acting like you're not in pain. It's not a spiritual thing. Our Savior didn't do that, and we shouldn't either. Paul didn't do that, and we shouldn't either. I want to, as your pastor, give you permission to feel, to feel your affliction, to own the emotions that are involved in that. My brother taught me this lesson before Paul taught it to me. A while back, I was dealing with some stuff internally, some affliction in my body even, and just in a mess. I'm talking to him about it as my brother and my doctor. And, uh, and he said, Chris, you're crazy because you feel bad for feeling bad. That's insane. He said, and he can talk to me this way, he said, just feel bad. It's okay, just feel bad. But don't feel bad about feeling bad. Feel bad. So I want to I give you that permission. Paul felt bad about what was going on in his life. Look at the language. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of our affliction which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Paul owned the reality of his suffering and we must own the reality of our suffering because our suffering teaches us a lesson. Look what he says next. 
He says we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's it, right? Go there. Feel bad. Cry. Mourn. Weep. Wail. Sweat drops of blood. But don't stay there. Because that's not the purpose. The purpose of getting you there is so that you will not trust in yourself, but you will trust in God who can raise the dead. So your affliction, your affliction may lead to this desire and this pain and this sense of death, but that's not the end of the story for Christians. Death is never the end of the story. There is resurrection power, right? Affliction leads to death. Death leads to resurrection. Resurrection leads to ministry. That's the way it works for Jesus, and that's the way it works with us. So don't deny the reality of your affliction. Go, go there with it, even to the point of death, and know that Jesus raises the dead. Ha! Huh. Do you see the connection with, with 1 Corinthians here? Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 3, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to a whole bunch of people, right? And then Paul argues this whole chapter for the reality of future resurrection for us. He says, Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, and therefore you will be raised if you are in Him in the resurrection on the last day. But in 2 Corinthians, he says that this true fact in 1 Corinthians 15 not only impacts the future to come, not only impacts eternity to come, that you'll be raised with a new body and a, a new life and all of these things. He says that's true, but it also affects the here and now. Paul says that resurrection of Jesus and that guarantee of future resurrection changes the way I deal with my afflictions here and now. So that I come to the end of it all. I come to the end of me and I learn that I must not trust in me, but I trust in Him who raises the dead. This is the most comforting thing. Because it's not just Paul saying, it's going to be okay, guys. It's going to be okay. You'll get through this. He doesn't say that. He says, you trust Jesus. You trust God who raises the dead. You trust Him who raises the dead. That's some solid comfort to rest on in the midst of your pain and affliction. He says, All of this suffering, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, listen to the language here, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. Yes! Right? So in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my affliction, I look back and I say, He has delivered. He has delivered. He has already raised me from the dead. And then I look in, in my affliction and say, He will deliver me. Right? He might not rescue me from the dangers. Paul never said he rescued him from the dangers, did he? He didn't say, I was on a ship and it was about to, it was about to wreck and he stopped it. No, he said, He comforted me in the middle of my affliction. He comforted me through my affliction and he rescued me and delivered me in my affliction. He says, I look back and I see that he has delivered me and he will deliver me. And then he says, and I look even further ahead and I say, he will yet deliver me. There is deliverance. There is comfort. There is hope on every side of us as Christians, right? There is resurrection power completely surrounding us, behind us, around us, and in front of us. It's all over the place. Why do we live with such despair? Why do we live with such hopelessness when we are completely surrounded by hope? Go there. Go into the depths of your despair and come out raised from the dead. That's the way it works with Jesus. Look what he, look what he says next in verse 11. He says, 
You get to be a part of this. This doesn't, this thing doesn't even happen by itself. This is Paul in a very honest and raw way saying, I want you to help me in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my affliction. I want you to help me. He says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. He says, even this whole experience of of comfort and hope in the midst of affliction, it doesn't even happen in isolation. It happens as you participate. Paul, superstar Paul, all-star Paul, says, I need you, church at Corinth, messed up perverts at Corinth. He says, I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me. I want you to be part of this so that you see affliction, death, resurrection, and ministry as the cycle not only for my life but for your life as well. Paul says this is a community effort. This is a community action just like everything else in the Christian life. So, three, four applications today. The first one is a warning because I want to be very clear about this. The principles of hope, listen to me clearly, don't check out. This is so important. The principles of hope and comfort in the midst of affliction that we're talking about here do not apply. Do not apply to your suffering that is a result of your sinfulness. Does it make sense to you? If you are experiencing suffering because you are living in sin or with sin, the words of comfort that we are sharing here do not apply. The type of affliction that Paul is talking about in these verses is the affliction that comes in faithful following of Jesus, not in rebellious acts of sinfulness, okay? So don't think that you can just sit back, that you are suffering because of your sin, and you say, oh, I have hope in the midst of my affliction. Well, you do, but not from this text, okay? So let me, let, me, let me speak to that very quickly. If your suffering, if your affliction, so to speak, is a result of your sinfulness, is a direct result of your sinfulness, the comfort and the peace and the hope come in confession and repentance. Right? Confession and repentance are the avenues into which hope flows, through which hope flows into your life through which comfort flows into your life. There's a passage in in, uh, Acts, the beginning of Acts, one of the first sermons that Peter preaches. He talks to them about how they've killed Jesus. And then he says this, Repent and turn from your sins, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's, That's it. If your affliction, affliction, if your suffering, if your pain, if your sorrow is a result of your sin, the comfort and the peace... And the hope come in repentance and confession. Repent that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent that times of refreshing may come from Him. Does that make sense to you? But don't think, don't think that these verses apply directly to that situation. Paul is talking about the affliction, the persecution, the trouble that he faced in his faithful following of Jesus Christ. So, two more applications. Number one, suffering is real. Affliction is real. To deny it is ridiculous. It's insane. It's insane to say that these things don't hurt. It's insane. And I'll speak from my perspective. When Paul, in chapter 11, talks about the burden of the churches, that's a real deal. That is a real thing that is hard to explain. The burden of the churches. The burden of... 400 plus lives and the drama that goes on in those lives. That is a real burden. And to act like it's not 
is crazy. Is absolutely crazy. So, I think embrace the fact that those burdens are real, those afflictions are real, that that pain is real. To deny it is ridiculous. And as your pastor, I want to give you permission to feel those things. But I want to warn you, don't stay there. Number two, recognize that all of your suffering, all of your affliction is purposeful. Is purposeful. Because God brings comfort in those afflictions. And that comfort is meant to be a comfort not just to you, but to everyone around you. Here's the pattern. Write this down. If if, if all this just kind of spewed out and you don't get it, you'll get this. Affliction leads to death. Death leads to resurrection. Resurrection leads to ministry. Affliction leads to death. Death leads to resurrection. Resurrection leads to ministry. That's the pattern that should be on display in our lives all the time. I hope that's the pattern that you see on display in my life today. Because I'm telling you, Monday, I was down. I was dead. I was dying. I was in a mess Monday. Affliction led to death. Death led to resurrection. He says, so that I learn not to trust in myself, but to trust in God who raises the dead. Resurrection then leads to ministry. So that I can stand here today, and instead of preaching this with all this gloom and doom, I can preach it with this hope to say, this can happen in your life. He can bring this amazing comfort and peace to you in the midst of your affliction. And I want you to feel that kind of peace. I want you to have that kind of comfort. I want you to have that kind of hope. And then the last application is that all of this is possible. All of this cycle, all of this hope, all of this comfort, all of this resurrection is because of Jesus. Because this cycle is his cycle. This pattern is his pattern. He was afflicted, right? How was he afflicted? In every way possible, he was afflicted. He took our sins upon himself and suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. That's affliction. To the greatest degree, that's affliction. And that affliction led to what? Death. He died. He died the death that we deserve. And his death led to what? Resurrection. That's the beginning of the story, that Jesus died and rose again. And he doesn't just walk away. He doesn't just go off into a corner and hide and say, I've been raised from the dead. No, that leads to ministry. That leads to effectiveness. That leads to service. That leads to change for us, right? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just raise from the dead and ascend immediately to heaven and not worry about us? No. All of this is for us, right? Ministry for us. And that's the way it has to work in our lives. It works in our lives this way because that's the way it works with Jesus. And I want you to hear that best story. That Jesus died for your sins and rose again and he alone can change your life. So repent. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him. Receive this great gift that He offers, that He has purchased, that He gives freely. Receive it by faith and follow Him with your life. And you'll have hope in the midst of your afflictions. You'll have comfort in the midst of your afflictions. And that's the best place to be. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us as we live out your truths as we leave this place. Guard us. Guard us against misapplications. God, help us to see that suffering as a result of our sin is discipline from you and is good and we deserve it. And God, help us to see in those cases that comfort is found in confession and repentance. 
So help us confess and repent. And God, when our suffering is a result of simply following you faithfully, when our affliction is persecution, burden, sorrow, God, I pray that you help us to own that and feel that. Forgive us when we try to deny it and make light of it. God, I pray that that we will feel what you would have us to feel. And that in the midst of all of that, we would recognize it's purposeful. That our affliction, though it would lead to death, also leads to resurrection and ministry. God, I pray that we won't suffer on an island, isolated. pray that we won't be comforted on an island and isolated, but that we will run to one another as brothers and sisters, that we will be a help to each other. And God, I thank you that ultimately we have this pattern because of Jesus, because he was afflicted, because he died, because he was raised, and because he ministers. God, there are people in this room that don't know that, that don't know about resurrection in their lives because they haven't trusted Jesus. They haven't placed their faith in him. They haven't repented of their sins. God, I pray that today would be the day that that happens. We know that only you can do that in their lives. Only you can bring them to that place. And so we ask that you would, that you would turn eyes and hearts to you. Give repentance, give faith. Let people, help people respond rightly to the gospel. And God, help your church to live out the gospel as we suffer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.